Well, good morning, everyone. If you can find a seat, that'd be great. Uh, We're going to get started today talking about dispensationalism. Um, this is a particular approach to reading the Bible and doing biblical theology, and it affects other types of theology as well. And um, this uh, particular, I guess you could say, school of thought, for lack of a better term, I guess that's what I'm going to call it, uh, dispensationalism was popularized, uh, really invented by J.N. Darby, and it was a, uh, an integral part of a group called the Plymouth Brethren, and we're going to talk about them a little bit as well uh, as we go along. Oh, I can step up to the mic. <laughs> okay, the request was for more volume. Dispensationalism is a theological system that was first formalized by John Nelson Darby. Dispensationalism as a theological system maintains that history is divided into multiple ages or dispensations in which God interacts with humanity in different ways. Dispensationalists generally maintain a belief in premillennialism, a future restoration of Israel, and in a rapture that will happen before the second coming of Christ, uh, which is generally seen as happening before the tribulation. And we'll get into all the details of these ideas. Uh, who in here has heard of dispensationalism? Quite a few. Yep, just about everybody. John Nelson Darby, who lived from 1800 to 1882, was an Anglo-Irish Bible teacher. Uh, he was one of the influential figures among the original Plymouth Brethren and the founder of the Exclusive Brethren. The Ply Plymouth Brethren are a low church and nonconformist group whose history can be traced back to Dublin, Ireland in the mid to late 1820s, where they originated from Anglicanism. The group emphasizes sola scriptura, the belief that the Bible is the supreme authority for church doctrine and practice over and above any other source of authority. Plymouth Brethren generally see themselves as a network of like-minded free churches, not as a Christian denomination. And the movement began in Dublin, Ireland, where several groups of Christians met informally to share the Lord's Supper together. The first meeting was held in 1825, and most of the people attending were not professional clergy. The central figures were Anthony Norris Groves, a dentist studying theology at Trinity College, uh, Edward Cronin studying medicine, John Nelson Darby, who we mentioned before, he was actually a curate. He was one of the few members in the early days who was actually uh, a religious figure. He was a curate in County Wicklow, Ireland, and John Gifford Bellet, a lawyer who had brought them all together. They had no liturgy or order of service or even any minister officiating. In their view, since their guide was the Bible alone, they sought to conduct their meeting according to their own interpretation of the biblical text. Now, you could think, 
how do you do this? If people have different ideas about their interpretations, how to interpret the Bible, um, this could lead potentially to some conflict. The two main but conflicting aspirations of the movement were to create a holy and pure fellowship on the one hand and to allow all Christians into fellowship on the other. And again, you can see here too, this is a, a place for potential conflict. If we just let anybody in who says they're a Christian, that might, you know, water down our holy and pure fellowship if this person truly is not a Christian. But these were the ideas that they had. Uh, now later the movement spread to Plymouth, England, and that became the center of the movement. And so the group became known as the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, like many other dissenting groups in England, they felt that the established Church of England had abandoned or distorted many of the ancient traditions of Christianity. Uh, but following decades of dissent and with the expansion of Methodism and with political revolutions in the United States and France, uh, they were very concerned that political factors, social factors, other religious trends and developments were affecting the, the uh, practice of pure Christianity. And people in the movement wanted simply to meet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without reference to denominational differences. So by 1845, the movement had a 1,000 in fellowship. And the group also became known as the Darbyites because, again, they were primarily following uh, the uh, teachings of John Nelson Darby. Now, by 1845, the group went through a split. And the two groups that emerged, uh, one group was called the Exclusive Brethren, and the other group was called the Open Brethren. And the split occurred when George Mueller, a leader in the movement, refused to accept Darby's view of the relationship between local assemblies following difficulties in the Plymouth meetings. So again, you can see at the very beginning of this movement, you know, these very, I'll say, loosey-goosey ideas about how to structure the fellowship, uh, you know, led to problems. Brethren that held Muller's uh, congregational view became known as open. So we're going to be open and accepting of everyone. Those holding Darby's connectional view became known as exclusive or Darbyite brethren. So in other words, this group is going to hold to a more rigorous definition of who's really a Christian, who can really be in our fellowship. Now, a lot of the controversy, as has happened with many other groups and movements, centered around adult versus infant baptism, the Lord's Supper, and other practices. So are we going to baptize infants only? Are we going to only practice believers' baptism, where people are old enough to uh, proclaim their own faith in Christ? And, uh, or, or could we potentially accept both forms of baptism? Uh, controversies about what does the Lord's Supper mean and how we should practice it? And of course, you know, you can say you're non-liturgical, but that's impossible. Um, it is impossible to be non-liturgical. People who say they are non-liturgical still have a liturgy, 
every service has an order because if it doesn't, you just have pure chaos and you don't worship the Lord. Um, you know, Paul brings this out very, very clearly in the, in the letters to the Corinthians. You've got to have order in the meetings and everybody has order or again, it just descends into chaos. Darby maintained a very factional stance and would not fellowship with Christians who were outside the Plymouth Brethren groups. And so, uh, you know, as you would expect, the, the, the term exclusive brethren uh, is applicable. Also, many exclusive brethren have traditionally been described as Darbyite, as they adhere mainly to the original doctrines and teachings of Darby and do not accept the concept of a doctrine that evolves through the teachings of successive leaders. Again, another uh, point of contradiction. We're just going to follow Darby. That's what they're saying. But as we will see, you know, Darby's a man. He died. He, you know, he's gone from the picture, so to speak. Other dispensationalists rose to take his place as leaders of this movement, and dispensationalists have followed a lot of these, and, and we'll, um, uh, later I'll list some names that may be familiar to some of you. So uh, they, pro they proclaim themselves as not accepting the concept that the teachings of church leaders are authoritative. Again, another conflict. We're going to go with Darby and what he teaches, but what church leaders teach is not authoritative. You know, how do you square that? Um, these teachings are not divinely sanctioned and binding on those in fellowship, which is ironic considering Darby's development of the system of dispensational theology and their wholehearted acceptance of it. Lots of contradictions here. Darby was one of just a few professional clergy in the Plymouth Brethren movement. He was educated in Ireland at Westminster School and Trinity College, Dublin. He graduated as a classical gold medalist in 1819. So, you know, presumably he was uh, scholarly and very good at academics. He embraced Christianity during his studies, although there is no evidence that he formally studied theology. He joined an inn of court, which is the English Professional Association for Barristers or Attorneys. So in England, you know, uh, in those days, you didn't go to law school. If you wanted to be a lawyer and practice as a lawyer, you did not go to a law school per se. You went, I guess, the inns of court. They were kind of like law schools, and they were the, the body that oversaw the practice of law. So he joins an inn of court. Um, but then he begins to feel that being a lawyer is inconsistent with his religious beliefs. He left the legal profession and chose ordination as an Anglican clergyman in Ireland. Now, technically, the Anglican Church in Ireland is called the Church of Ireland. The Anglican Church in England is called the Church of England. So in 1825, he was ordained deacon in the established Church of Ireland. In other words, the state-sanctioned official church. And then he was ordained as a priest in 1826. He became a curate, so he had, a, he, you know, uh, another term is parish priest, in essence. Um, and he distinguished himself by persuading Roman Catholic peasants 
in the Killarney district in Ireland to abandon the Roman Catholic Church. And you may not know much about Irish history, but Irish history has been uh, a series of controversies and conflicts between the presence of the English in Ireland, uh, the fact that many parts of Ireland for many years were not self-governing, um, and, and then the religious differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, so Ireland is, you know, a, a, was then and somewhat continues to be a place where political and religious differences uh, are an important part of their society. So uh, he, he was promoting a gospel tract, How the Lost Sheep Was Saved. And it gives Darby's personal account of a visit he paid to a dying shepherd boy in this area of Ireland, painting a vivid picture of what his work among the poor people involved. Darby later claimed to have won hundreds of converts to the Church of Ireland. These are converts out of the Roman Catholic Church to the Church of Ireland, but the conversions ended when William McGee, who was the uh, Anglican or Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin, ruled that converts were obliged to swear allegiance to George IV, the English king, as the rightful king of Ireland. If you are Irish, you do not want to do this. So Darby resigned. Um, he did not want his converts doing this either. And afterwards, in October of 1827, he fell from a horse and was seriously injured. He later stated that it was during this time that he began to believe that the kingdom described in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament was entirely different from the Christian church. Okay, this is an important idea. And we're going to see this idea developed and played out through dispensational theology. So keep that in mind. What we see in the Old Testament is totally separate from the Christian church as we see it portrayed in the New Testament. After leaving the Church of Ireland, Darby uh, you know, started up with the Plymouth Brethren uh, and also continued work on his theological system of dispensationalism. A key concept in understanding dispensationalism is the idea of progressive revelation. Now, if you are not a dispensationalist, the idea of progressive revelation is not a problem, really. I mean, any theology is going to have to have it. If you look at how the Bible is structured and presented to us, we see a progressing revelation of God to his people, to the world, and it becomes more refined and more clear as the, the millennia march on. Progressive revelation is the doctrine in some branches of Christianity that each successive book of the Bible pro provides further revelation of God in his program. For instance, the theologian Charles Hodge, who is not a dispensationalism, wrote, a dispensationalist rather, wrote the progressive character of divine revelation is recognized in relation to all the great doctrines of the Bible. What at first is only obscurely intimated is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume until the truth is revealed in its fullness. The New Testament writings then contain additional information regarding God and his plans 
and promises beyond the writings of the Old Testament. Disagreement exists between covenant theology and dispensationalism regarding the meaning and purpose of revelation in the Old and New Testaments. Covenant theology views the New Testament as the key to interpreting the Old Testament. Therefore, concepts such as the biblical covenants and promises to Israel are believed to be interpreted by the New Testament as applying to the church as well. So an important thing to keep in mind, unlike what Darby was thinking, the church and Israel are not two completely separate entities where God has different plans for each one and they're totally separate. Covenant theology sees one whole people of God and God's purposes in the Old Testament are not antithetical to or opposed to what we see uh, as God's purposes in the New Testament, and the Bible helps us understand that. Dispensationalism holds that both the Old Testament and New Testament are to be interpreted using literal grammatical historical interpretation, and they reject the idea that the meaning of the Old Testament was hidden or not fully revealed, and that the New Testament can alter the straightforward meaning of the Old Testament. Their view of progressive revelation is that the New Testament contains new information which can build on the Old Testament but cannot change its meaning. Dispensationalists profess a dis definite distinction between Israel and the Christian church. So there are two separate peoples of God in the dispensationalist system. There's Israel and there is the church, and God has a different plan for each one. For dispensationalists, Israel is an ethnic nation consisting of Hebrews, Israelites, beginning with Abraham and continuing in existence to the present. The church, on the other hand, consists of all saved individuals in this present dispensation, in other words, from the birth of the church in Acts, especially Acts chapter 3, until the time of the rapture. According to progressive dispensationalism, in contrast to the older forms, the distinction between Israel and the church is not mutually exclusive. There is an overlap between the two in this system of thinking because we know that some Jews have converted to Christianity that has gone on since we see the beginning of the church in Acts. I mean, what do you do with people like James, the brother of Jesus, a Jew who became a Christian? Christians of Jewish ethnicity uh, who held varying opinions on compliance with Mosaic law, you know, we see, we see how uh, the church fathers, the apostles, dealt with that in the book of Acts. You know, most recently we have studied uh, the portion of Acts where uh, Peter, uh, you know, confronts the whole issue of Gentiles being accepted into the church without having first to become Jews, first having to be circumcised and following the dietary laws and other aspects of Judaism. Um, you know, we see very clearly that the Gentiles are being grafted in. Classical dispensationalists refer to the present-day church as a parenthesis 
or a temporary interlude in the progress of Israel's prophesied history. And the promises made to Israel by God in the Old Testament are for Israel only, and they do not apply to the church. Dispensationalists believe that Israel as a nation will embrace Jesus as their Messiah toward the end of the Great Tribulation, as they see it laid out in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Revelation 7, 14, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So regarding eschatology, dispensationalists are futurists. These passages in Mark, Matthew, and Revelation, they believe that these events have yet to happen. Okay, so before we go on further with dispensational eschatology, we need to look at how dispensationalists divide up the Bible. A major proof text for this approach is found in 2 Timothy 2.15. And this is from the King James Version. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I bolded that latter portion of this verse because this is their big emphasis. We are going to divide up the Bible. And C.I. Schofield, an important American dispensationalist, wrote a pamphlet in 1885 titled Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And the next uh, uh, several slides I'm going to present are taken directly from his pamphlet. Schofield's pamphlet outlines seven dispensations. Now, there are other dispensationalist um, systems that might have more or less than seven, but um, I think you'll see this is, you know, you'll get the idea. Uh, So the scriptures uh, divide time. By time, what are we talking about? We're talking about starting with Adam, the creation of Adam, going all the way to the end of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, And we take this time period uh, and we divide it up into seven periods. Now, they're not necessarily all the same length. They are unequal in terms of their time. And we're going to call these dispensations or ages or days as in the day of the Lord. If you read the Bible you know, after a while, you begin to realize the term day doesn't always mean a literal 24-hour day. It can be used to mean a time period. It could be a long time period. Now, keep in mind, you know, you're reading an English translation of a text that was originally written either in Hebrew or Greek. And, the, you know, the translators may or may not have done a good job Uh, as describing a certain time period by using the English word day, you know. So so, sometimes our misunderstandings of the scripture stem from mistranslations in some cases. So anyway, in Schofield systems, uh, these periods are marked off in scripture by some change in God's method of dealing with mankind or a portion of mankind in respect of the two questions of sin and of man's responsibility. Each of the dispensations may be regarded as a new test 
of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, marking his utter failure. Five of these dispensations, or periods of time, have been fulfilled. But, according to the dispensationalists, we are living in the sixth dispensation, and we are probably coming to the close of that, and we have before us the seventh dispensation, uh, and this is the last, this is the millennium. The first dispensation is man innocent. Okay, so this goes from the creation of Adam to his expulsion from the garden. Adam was created innocent and ignorant of good and evil. He was placed in the garden with his wife Eve and given the commandment not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know, of course, he didn't obey that commandment. So this failure uh, ends this dispensation of innocence. And of course, you know, it has disastrous consequences of the, uh, for, for natural man. And it closes in judgment. Uh, God drove out the man. You know, the end, you know that's the end of, of man's fellowship with God in the garden. Okay, uh, afterwards, we come into the dispensation that Schofield calls man under conscience. By the fall, Adam and Eve acquired and transmitted to the human race the knowledge of good and evil. This gave conscience as a basis for right moral judgment. And so mankind comes under this measure of responsibility. He has a conscience. He can do good. He should shun evil. His conscience is supposed to tell him the difference between good and evil. Um, but we see that this doesn't work out too well. Um, towards the end of this period, uh, all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God closes this, this second dispensation, uh, this testing of the natural man, this natural man phrase is Schofield's term. I, you know, I'm not 100% sure what he meant by that, but okay. Uh, so, of course, this closes out with the flood. God, you know, comes and judges and, you know, says, I've got to wipe out all these wicked people. However, he finds Noah um, and preserves Noah and his family through this judgment. So we come to the third um, dispensation. Okay, so God saves Noah and his family through the flood, and he then gives the purified earth to Noah and his descendants to rule it, um, and they were responsible to do that. But how does this end up? This ends up with human beings in the plain of Shinar building the Tower of Babel, um, and God comes down and evaluates, in other words, judges, this, these efforts of man to, you know, in essence, supplant God uh, or make themselves gods, and he confuses their languages at the Tower of Babel. Another judgment. Out of the dispersed descendants of the builders of Babel, God calls one man, Abram, now, with whom he enters into covenant. Some of the promises to Abram and his descendants were purely gracious and unconditional. These either have been or will yet be literally fulfilled. Other promises were conditional. 
upon the faithfulness and obedience of the Israelites. But we know from what we see in the Bible, every one of these conditions was violated and the dispensation of promise uh, results in the utter failure of Israel and closes in the judgment of bondage in Egypt. So now, uh, after God brings out uh, the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, he brings them under the law. Ironically, Schofield says, the grace of God came to the help of helpless man. You know, um, <laughs> I, you know I, it's hard for me to go through these personally because I feel in every case, God's grace was operational. Uh, you know, there's, there is my point of view, which is a covenantal uh, theological point of view, is that God has acted towards mankind always with grace, grace upon grace. Um, and, uh, you know, we can't go into, you know, covenant. I, I mean, I'm just trying to lay out the basics of dispensational theology, and I, don't, I hope I get through this <laughs> today <laughs> in a short session. Um, but, and, and I would say the dispensationalists don't completely get rid of grace, um, but it's a different way of viewing. All right, but God comes to them in the wilderness of Sinai, and he gives them the law. Moses goes up to the mountain. He gets the law. Um, and instead of humbly pleading for a continued relation of grace, they presumptuously answer, oh, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The history of Israel in the wilderness and in the land is one long record of flagrant, persistent violation of the law. And at last, after multiplied warnings, God closed the testing of man by law in judgment. And first Israel and then Judah were driven out of the land into a dispersion, which still continues. Now, again, I'm taking all this material from Schofield's pamphlet, which he wrote long before the creation of the modern state of Israel. A feeble remnant returned under Ezra and Nehemiah, of which in due time Christ came, born of a woman, made under the law, and both Jews and Gentiles conspired to crucify him. And, of course, there we have the relevant scriptures. Now we come to man under grace. Now let's stop a minute. Right here you can see this is already setting us up for a dichotomy. Uh, I would say a false dichotomy between law and grace. The sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ introduced the dispensation of pure grace, which means undeserved favor or God-given righteousness so that instead of requiring righteousness as under the law, God just gives his righteousness through Jesus Christ. Salvation, perfect and eternal, is now freely offered to Jew and Gentile upon the one condition of faith. Um, and key verses for Schofield are uh, John 6, 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent, and John 6, 47, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. John 5, 24, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath eternal life and cometh not into judgment, but hath passed out of death into life. John 5, 24. 
The predicted result of this testing of man under grace is judgment upon an unbelieving world and an apostate church. And the relevant verses for Schofield are listed there. The first event in the closing of this dispensation will be the descent of the Lord from heaven when sleeping saints will be raised. In other words, those uh, people, Christians who have died before his coming, uh, they will be raised from the dead and... Together, then believers who are then living at that time will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Then follows the brief period called the Great Tribulation. There's the relevant verses. And after this, the personal return of the Lord to the earth in power and great glory occurs, and the judgments which introduce the seventh and last dispensation will come about. And again, the relevant verse is there. Now, man under the reign of Christ. This is the dispens- So, according to Schofield and the dispensationalists, we're living in stage number six, and the last stage is stage seven, man under the reign of Christ. After the purifying judgments which accompany his personal return to the earth, Christ will reign over restored Israel and over the earth for 1,000 years, This is the period commonly called the millennium. The seat of his power will be Jerusalem, and the saints, including the saved of the dispensation of grace, the church, will be associated with him in his glory. And the verses that Schofield um, uses for this are there. a geopolitical kingdom, Christ physically reigning from Jerusalem. But when Satan is loosed a little season, he finds the natural heart as prone to evil as ever and easily gather the nations to battle against the Lord and his saints. And this last dispensation closes like the others in judgment. The great white throne is set, the wicked dead are raised and finally judged, and then come the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so this is a future view of these events. Dispensationalists are futurists. They interpret those key passages of the Bible that I listed um, as, you know, many of these have yet to be fulfilled. So the Great Tribulation, according to dispensationalist eschatology, is a relatively short period of time where everyone will experience worldwide hardships, persecution, disasters, famine, war, pain, and suffering, which will affect all of creation and precede the judgment of all when the second coming takes place. Some pre-tribulationists believe that those who choose to follow God will be raptured before the tribulation and will escape it. Post-tribulationists believe Christians who are alive at the time of the great tribulation must endure it and will receive great blessings for their endurance. According to dispensationalists who hold the futurist view, the tribulation is thought to occur before the second coming of of Jesus and during the end times. Uh, They believe, and they've got various dating schemes to support this, the tribulation is going to last seven prophetic Hebrew years each year quote-unquote will last 360 days each 
but the great tribulation will be the second half of the tribulation period. And this seven-year period is the final week of Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks found in Daniel 9. It is theorized that each week represents seven years with the timetable beginning from Artaxerxes' order to rebuild the second temple in Jerusalem. After seven weeks and 62 weeks, the prophecy says that the Messiah will be cut off, which is taken to correspond to the death of Christ. And this is seen as creating a break of indeterminate length in the timeline with one week remaining to be fulfilled. Now, there is an alternative view um, to uh, futurism, and that's called preterism. In the preterist view, the tribulation took place in the past when Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD during the end stages of the first Jewish-Roman war, and it only affected the Jewish people rather than all mankind. The term preterism comes from the Latin praetor, which is a prefix denoting that something is past or beyond. Christian preterists, or, and, and there are also partial preterists, believe that the tribulation was a divine judgment visited upon the Jews for their sins, including rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah. A preterist discussion of the tribulation has its focus on the Gospels, in particular, the prophetic passages in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, rather than on the book of Revelation. Preterists apply much of the symbolism in Revelation to Rome, the Caesars, and their persecution of Christians. Preterists do not see the symbolism in Revelation as applying to the tribulation upon the Jews. As an example, a preterist would say that the number 666 in Revelation symbolizes the Roman Emperor Nero, who persecuted Christians and who is long since dead. So in other words, the preterist is reading almost all of you know, the passages in the New Testament that, that when they were written almost 2,000 years ago, at that time applied to events that were transpiring in that day or happened shortly after the writing of the Gospels and the uh, epistles. Um, all of this, almost all of this is in the past. Uh, of course, we know that there is the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is the great white throne judgment in which everyone will be judged. And then those who, have, who are found in Christ will be with him in glory in a new heaven and a new earth. Um, so, in other words, a preterist sees almost all of this, all of these things that dispensationalists believe is going to happen in the future, they see it's already happened, and they, they base that interpretation on what we know from history in general, and they say the Great Tribulation was what was inflicted on the Jews, and their temple was destroyed. The Jewish system of sacrifices has never been reinstituted officially, um, you know, there are people who want to build another temple in Jerusalem. They can't do it because the, on the Temple Mount is an Islamic mosque. So, you know, it would probably start World War III <laughs> if the Jews decided to tear down that mosque and build a new temple. 
um, you know, but there are Jews and uh, some non-Jews who want to see a new temple built on top of where the old one stood. Um, I doubt that's going to happen. And there are other reasons why I doubt that. It's not just the Muslims. Um, now, uh, premillennial dispensational theology and eschatology proved to be very popular in England and America. And Schofield did much to popularize and promote this theological uh, position. His Schofield Reference Bible was first published in 1909 and proved to be very popular. It continues in print to this day. It was published originally by the Oxford University Press and contained the entire text of the traditional Protestant King James Version of the Bible. Um, and then it was later revised by the author in 1917. And it has um, some innovative features uh, that most Bibles of that time did not have. It had uh, running commentary on the text. So, you know, along with the text, you've got this commentary um, on the sides, in the margins. And, you know, in other words, it's incorporating a commentary within the Bible itself, so you don't have a separate commentary book. Um, it was the first to do so in English since the Geneva Bible of 1560. And it contained a cross-referencing system that tied together related verses of scripture. And that's a good thing. This chain reference system allowed a reader to follow biblical themes from one chapter and book to another. And there are now, today, many different types of Bible, Bibles, not just Schofield's Bible, that you know, have these chain reference systems built in, and they are very helpful. Finally, the 1917 edition also attempted to date events of the Bible. And it was in the pages of this Schofield reference Bible that many Christians encountered Archbishop James Usher from the 1600s, who calculated the date of creation as 4004 BC. Now that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms, and you know if you want to research that, you can. I'm not going to go into that. Um, and um, also, uh, Schofield uh, develops this idea of a gap theory. And fundamentalists began a serious internal debate about the nature and chronology of creation. Now, if you recall from previous talks, we had just touched on Darwin and the other evolutionists. You know, so at this time, you know, we're talking, you know, the early 20th century, people are being confronted with ideas about evolution. Is evolution true? You know, uh, what are the Christians saying? So, you know, these were, these were very important to the people of that day. And uh, the fundamentalists uh, began to adhere closely, many of them, to these dispensational schemes, these dating systems, um, because they believe we are going to stick with the Bible. We are not going to accept modern, quote-unquote, theories of evolution um, and, you know, that means we've got to come up with a dating system for all of time that is consistent with the scriptures. No, um, we might need to take that offline. Um, yeah, I've still got more to, <laughs> not too much more, but Schofield's Bible continues to be a bestseller today. 
And dispensationalism was adopted by many American evangelists such as D.L. Moody, founder of Moody Bible Institute, and Louis Sperry Schaefer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dispensationalism became very popular in American evangelicalism, especially among non-denominational Bible churches, Baptist, Pentecostal, and charismatic groups. In the early 20th century, Plymouth Brethren teachings greatly influenced the little flock or church assembly hall of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee in China and Taiwan. And um, uh, here you see uh, the second footnote. Um, this is where you could, you know, you can look up uh, Schofield's seven dispensations that he outlines. Um, and there, there is tons on the internet. If you want to further research, there's like tons and tons of stuff on the internet on dispensationalism. Now, if you want to contrast that with covenant theology, I and and you know maybe you know maybe you've been in churches that teach dispensational teachings. Maybe that's very familiar to you. You're not as familiar with covenant theology. I would highly, highly recommend two books. One, uh, both of them are by R.C. Sproul. I don't know how well you can see this on camera, but this is R.C. Sproul's book, Grace Unknown. R.C. Sproul is an excellent speaker and writer, a reformed theologian. Unfortunately, he has passed away. This book is only 217 pages, and in this book, you can find a clear, concise um, development of the attributes of God, the five solas, uh, the bedrock of Reformed covenant theology, and a very clear explanation of the gospel um, and how uh, the work of God in our hearts to lead us to Christ actually works. Um, I, I, this is a fantastic book. I can't recommend it highly enough. He has a lot of quotes from uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Of course, those are names that stand out to us as you know, two of the greatest reformers. And he clearly explains covenant theology in a way that really anyone can understand it. Now, if you are interested in a non-dispensational approach to eschatology, that we have many books on this, and I know some of you have read them, but if you have not read, R.C. Sproul's The Last Days According to Jesus. Highly, highly recommend this book. It's, as you can see, it's not very long. It's clear, it's concise, and it helps you understand the preterist and partial preterist view, uh, which is more consistent with covenant theology. Um, excellent books, easy reading, um, just fantastic. Um, now, hopefully I haven't confused anybody. You know, if there's points of confusion, Greg and I are more than happy to, you know, take your questions offline. Um, and uh, that, that concludes my discussion today uh, with dispensationalism.